invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 18, Genesis chapter 18, we'll finish up this conversation that God had with Abraham, we'll begin reading in verse 22, Genesis 18 verse 22, then the men turned away from there. And went toward Sodom. While Abraham was still standing before Yahweh, then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put to death the righteous with the wicked. So that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Should not the judge of all the earth do justice? So Yahweh said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham answered and said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose... The fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And then he said to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are there, are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I am I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I will speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, Yahweh departed and Abraham turned to his place. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your precious word. It is so good. It is the anchor for our souls. It's a wonderful a thing to be able to open it and unpack its truths. Lord, I pray for clarity today and just understanding. May your spirit work in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we want things to work. When we have things, we want them to work. This morning, you you flipped on the light switch. You wanted that electricity to be there and, and to work. Those lights to work. Or running water. Or maybe you stepped in the shower And you are glad for hot water. You're glad that the hot water tank worked. We want things to work. You got in your car, turned the keys, and and you wanted that car to work. You just kind of relied upon it. You you expected it to work. Um, The pew that you're sitting in, um, hopefully it works. It's dependable. Something that you can count on. Your spouse is someone that you can depend upon, that you can count on. It's important that society has these things built into it, those things that are faithful, those things that are true, that 
that work, that are, that are reliable, banks and stores and, and people to get up and, and go to work. We rely on those things. In fact, if we don't, we, we have insurance so that we, we can secure, uh, uh, make sure that things will, will work. But sometimes that car doesn't work. Sometimes, sometimes that pew collapses. Now, hopefully it won't do that today. But sometimes those things happen. Jobs disappoint. Spouses uh, sometimes let us down. Um, and we don't like that. It, it produces anxiety in our hearts. It produces this insecurity within us when those things don't work. And, or when things don't work. And, and we want things to work. Things need to be reliable. Now, last week we saw this conversation that God had with Abraham. And in this conversation, it seems that, that God is changing his mind or, or that Abraham is persuading God. And that, uh, in fact, he, he's standing kind of in judgment over God and chiding God to persuade God to, to, uh, to kind of change his attitude or change his mind. And you, if you didn't understand that Abraham was pleading with God and not trying to manipulate God, you would come to the conclusion and miss... Uh, misunderstanding that God is vulnerable, that he is liable, that he is, he is, there's potential for God to change his mind. And that raises the question then is, does God change his mind? And if we know scripture, we would automatically say in our own hearts and our minds, and we would say, no, God does not change his mind. That would be inconsistent with the character of God that we see in scripture. That he cannot lie. He is, he is truthful. And it would imply that, indicate that, that um, God has received new information that he didn't know before. Maybe he forgot something that he didn't know, know. And so now he's changed his mind. And we know that that is just inconsistent. That is not going to happen. God does not let us down. God is to be relied upon. He is faithful. I like what Arthur Pink says. He says, but all praise to his glorious name. He is ever the same. His purpose is fixed. His will is stable. His word is sure. Here then is a rock on which we may fix our feet while the mighty torrent is sweeping away everything around us. The permanence of God's character guarantees the faithfulness of his promise. I love that. The, the, the character, this permanence of his character guarantees his faithful promises. That's, that's something that we can hang on to. God does not change. And that's the principle, isn't it? That God is unchanging in his essence, in his character, in his purpose, in his promise, in his very nature. His nature does not change. It, it, it cannot change. But... And here's the key, but he encourages us, his people, to appeal to him, just like Abraham. In fact, if you remember back last week, God is the one that invited Abraham into the conversation to, uh, and he knew that Abraham would be pleading for the lives of these people. He invited Abraham into that conversation. And so we see in this text, this text is a, uh, it gives us a good idea, a good indication of how God 
interchanges or interacts with his people. Uh, with the people that are following him. In fact, what you really could do, essentially, this is a prayer. Abraham's communing with God, communication with God. It would be like us praying. You might compare this prayer to the Lord's prayer um, as, a, as just a, a comparison there. That there's many of the same principles of reverence, of a bold pleading before the Lord a proper attitude of thy will be done. You see, all of those same elements there. And God encourages us to come to Him and, and plead and, and encourages us to pray and ask whatever we wish according to His will. So the, the, the question really, uh, a more accurate question is, is not does God change His mind, but how does God relate to man? I want you to think in those kinds of terms. And I want to answer three questions here. There's three questions, I think, that will help us to uh, understand this issue a little bit better. And the first question is, is what is this tension then in Scripture that we find that, that God is immutable? He is unchangeable on the one hand, and yet we see on the other hand that he, he, he could change his mind. Or this idea that he seems to have changed his mind here. I want you to see this. And... And people would point back to Genesis chapter 6. We'll look at a few passages here to, so that you can understand what I'm talking about. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 6. This is after uh, God looks down. He sees the sinfulness of man in verse 5. Uh, Yahweh saw the evil of man was uh, great on the earth. And every intent of the thought of man was evil continuously. And here's what it says in verse 6. Then, and Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. Now, does that mean that he, he wished it had never made man? That was a bad choice? Bad idea? Did God change his mind here all of a sudden? Let me show you another one. In Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32 and verse 12. This is when the children of Israel had been led out of Egypt. Moses had gone up to the mountain. While he was gone, they make a golden calf. God comes down and sees what is going on. And he is furious with Israel. And in verse 9, I'm sorry, in verse 10, um, he says then, um, and God is furious with Israel. Uh, Israel and he turns to Abraham and or I'm sorry Moses and here's what he says to Moses now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them that I may consume them and I will make you a great nation as opposed to Abraham I will make you a great nation and of course Moses steps in and he pleads to God and verse 12 we see he says this why should the Egyptians speak saying with Evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent concerning doing harm to your people. Wow, it seems like there that, that Moses has to intervene or God's going to wipe them out. And God then changes his mind. 
You kind of get that sense. Is, is God just kind of reckless? Is he, is he just flippantly changing his mind? Is he driven by his, his own emotions here? Kind of get that sense, don't we? Turn over to 1 Samuel, another passage. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 11. In fact, we will come back to the end of chapter, this chapter. We'll look at verse 11. You, you'll recognize the context here. It says, I regret that I have made Saul. Let me uh, read verse 10. Then the word of Yahweh came to Samuel. So God is talking to Samuel saying, I, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and have not established my word. Samuel, of course, then was furious and he pleaded with God then all night, all night long concerning this. And you again, you get the sense that God has has changed his mind here, made a, a bad decision. Now, there is a theology called open theology or openness theology a group of theologians would say, yes, God does change his mind, that he is learning, that he is growing. He is he is really wise, but he is not all wise. He is not omniscient, but he's very, very wise. And he would they would say that maybe he put his sovereignty and his wisdom. He put those on the back burner. So not to impute man's uh, choice and. That's the way they kind of reason it. But they would say that that God doesn't know how people are going to respond to him. And so he wants to see what they will do in each moment before he chooses his response to them. So God is reacting to man in that sense, that, that he's waiting and anticipating. And then once he sees their decision, then he's going to make his decision. Folks, that is a gross misunderstanding of Scripture. That, that is not there. In fact, that's a shallow view of God. It's a shallow view of Scripture, uh, both here. Scripture is clear that God is uh, immutable. God is unchanging. You can look at Micah, or I'm sorry, Malachi chapter uh, 3. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you Oh, sons of Jacob are not consumed. God is saying, if I was one that changed my mind, then you, Israel, would just be wiped off. You would be consumed if I was one to change. But God is not one to change. In fact, in the New Testament, a verse that you would probably know well as well, James chapter 1, verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The idea there is that God does not change one hint or one smidgen, not not a bit. Now, why is this? Well, we look at Exodus chapter three, verse fourteen, that God is self-existing; He is outside of time. Psalm chapter one hundred two, verse twenty-seven says that He is eternal. Meaning he is outside, he is completely unaffected by what goes on within time. He is the first and the last we see at scripture, the beginning and the end. And uh, Romans chapter one, verse 23, we see that he is incorruptible. There's nothing within him 
Nothing within him that would cause decay. Nothing within him to, that would be some kind of default or uh, defect that, that he would slip up or, or he would forget in any way. I like what, again, Arthur Pink says. He says, God cannot change for the better because he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Altogether unaffected by anything outside himself. Improvement or deterioration is impossible. He is perpetually the same. That is good theology. God does not change. He is outside, completely unaffected by man. Now, we, we have that. We understand God is completely sovereign. He is, he is, um, uh, his will will be done and it's just being played out in real time and he is outside of that. But what do we do within Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, where it seems like God changed his mind? How do we harmonize the two of these things? Now, the danger here is to say, well, mm, it doesn't really matter. This does matter. Because we're talking about the very character of God. This is not one of those issues that you can just stay neutral on and just not not to take a, a side. It's not like a soccer game where nobody wins. Uh, you, you know, it doesn't matter who wins. That, that kind of thing. This is something you have to take a, a stance on. Why does it matter so important? Why does it matter so much? Why is it so important that we get it right? It's because we're dealing with, like I said, the character and the nature of God. That means if we get this wrong, we're dealing with idolatry here. We've got the wrong God, not not the God of Scripture. And it's a matter then of, of heaven or hell. So that's very sobering. So you see this tension in Scripture uh, that might be a little hard for us to understand, maybe a little hard for us to explain. But on one hand, you have God's immutability. He does not change. On the other hand, you, you see him thinking through things or, or at least seeming to change his mind. And we better get it right. Now, I like what Dr. Mayhew says. I don't think I have this on the screen. But Dr. Mayhew says a good way to understand this uh, apparent change in, in Scripture is to... Uh, Consider that God reveals Himself in His relationship with people. So what's going on here is that God is, is revealing Himself in His relationship. His, we, we see His character, His nature on the way He deals with people. Now, I want us to think through that because there's a couple of elements that we need to keep in mind here. Number one is that, that this, is, this is communication. God is communicating with man. In these conversations, in these things that are happening, God is communicating with man. We need to keep this in, in mind. And in this, uh, in this communication, we have to understand that God is far different from man. God is, is, is similar to man, but He is, is far different from man. In fact, that was one of the sins of, of Israel was that they thought that God was like them. Psalm chapter 50, verse 21, says this. These things you have done and I've kept silent. God says, here's, here's your mindset. Here's what you have done. And I haven't said a word about this, but you thought I was just like you. 
And I will reprove you and state a case against you. I'm going to bring you into court and, and lay these things before you, uh, your eyes. You thought that you were, you were, that I was like you. That we, they were bringing God down to their level. And, and I think that's tend to, uh, tends to be the case with man. We bring God down to our level. But God is a good communicator. He knows how to communicate. God is not to be brought down to our level. We're not to read that into that. The idea is that God is communicating to man on the right level. He is communicating to man on a way, in a way that man can understand. Now just think about this. How do you, how do you communicate to a baby? You really can't. It's really hard to communicate to a baby. You can sit there and reason with them. You can sit there and talk theology to them. But they don't quite get it. Or, or even stretching your imagination e- even more. You, you may watch a trail of ants. Now, we have ants in our house. These little tiny ants, not cockroaches. Little tiny ants, okay? And you'll see a trail of these ants. And we were wondering, where, where were they going? And there were some, a few things. And we were thinking, well, there's nothing in there for those ants to get. But sure enough, they found Found something to get. And, and so I reasoned with those ants. I said, ants, now you go out and find, go to, go to your own house, right? No, you just spray stuff. You get rid of those ants. How do I get down to their level and explain in their terms? Now that's the same situation that God has. I mean, God is far different from us. He is, He is not like us. We is, He is not the same. Yet he is a good communicator and he gets down on our level and, and, and brings the communication down so we can understand. Now this is called anthropomorphic language. Okay? It's just bringing, anthro is just, uh, bringing, uh, it's just man, it means man, is bringing a communication down so that man can understand. It's, it's human physical characteristics are attributed to God. So sometimes you, you read the scripture and you, you hear about the face of God or the strong arm of God. Or maybe that, that God walked with, with man. We know that God is spirit. He doesn't have arms. He doesn't have a face. He doesn't have legs to walk. That's just anthropomorphic language to help us to understand and so that God can relate to us. It helps us to make things that are some somewhat uh, 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 less concrete, more concrete, so that we can understand them and grasp uh, these these terms, because we can relate to that. We, we know that people have a face. We know that that uh, uh, that a strong arm. We can relate and, and understand that walking with God, having that conversation with God, and because of this, folks, because of this. We don't grope around wondering what God expects of us. We don't grope around in, in the dark wondering what God is like and what we're supposed to do and what His demands on our lives are. We should be thankful, folks, that God communicates to us and that He comes down onto our level so that we can understand. And I think that's, a, that's one element of what's going on here is a is a good communicator. He's bringing things down into our level. Another thing that we have to keep in mind is that God is relatable. God is 
a person. He has, he has personhood, we, we might say. In Numbers chapter 23, a passage that begins to begin to see this. In Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. Moses says this. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Doesn't change his mind. Doesn't, doesn't repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not establish it? Now, now to even communicate that, he has to use uh, anthropomorphic language here so that, so that we can understand that he is speaking with us. Let me go back to that first Samuel passage, first Samuel chapter 15. At the beginning of the passage, it says that I regret that I've uh, made Saul king. And by the end of that passage, uh, Samuel then goes to Saul. And here's what he says to Saul. Verse 28, to the end of the chapter. So Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. So he's taken the kingdom out of your hands and given it to it's David is going to be the next king anointed by God. But then he goes on to say in verse 29, also the eternal one, that's Yahweh, that's God. The eternal one of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. But you know what? He's not a man, but he uses language that we can understand. We can understand regret, can't we? We understand what's what's happening here. You know, God doesn't change his mind uh, in the sense that he he's made a bad decision here. But he is like us. He is like men in that he he has regret. What's going on? It's regret over the change has been in Saul. The, re, the regret there is God uh, reacting to Saul's change. Now, God's overall purpose has not changed. People change. And God may, may grieve over the sin, and he should rightfully so. He grieves over the sin, but God's purpose continues throughout all generations, throughout all the ages. And so here's the principle, and this is a definition from a theology book uh, that Dr. Mayhew and uh, Dr. MacArthur wrote. Here's the principle. God's emotions are active and deliberate expressions of his holy disposition. I love that. Think about that. God has a holy disposition. He loves righteousness. He loves what is good, what is beautiful, what is noble. He loves righteousness, but also he hates sin. And he's going to react to both of those things. So God's emotion is is active and deliberate expressions of his holiness. Now, God gets angry at sin. He is a jealous God, we see. There's emotions. He is jealous for His glory. And He'll react to defend His, His holiness. That means then He is interacting with us, with us humans. Even though He's outside of time, He is interacting with us. At the moment of sin, at the moment of disappointment, He'll react to those things. 
Now, I'm, I'm glad for that. I'm glad for that. God, God is grieved over sin, but at the same time, He rejoices over righteousness. He rejoices over repentance. Think about that. So every time someone turns from their sin and turns to Him in faith, there's a rejoicing there. There's a, a wonderful expression from God that, that's a, a good thing from our perspective especially. Now, to, to give you some an illustration of this, turn over to Jonah. Jonah chapter, you know the story of Jonah. Jonah chapter 3. Because this is played out so well in this, in this little story, in this passage. This account of uh, God sparing Nineveh here. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 9. Jonah, of course, runs from God, says, I'm not going to go to that wicked city, Nineveh. Uh, and, and he flees to Tarsus. God, of course, uh, gives him a ride back to uh, back to Nineveh where he needed to be. Jonah then preaches. And uh, and the, it says in verse six that the words of uh, Jonah was preaching, reached the kings of the, the king. And so the, the king pleads to his people. And he says this in verse nine, he says, who knows, may God may turn and relent and turn away from his burning anger so that he will not so that we will not perish. Who knows if we do righteousness, if we turn, then maybe maybe God will see that and he will not punish us. He will not he will not with his burning anger wipe us out. And then verse 10 tells us what happened. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. So God relented. And you get the idea that God changed his mind. And he re- relented concerning their evil, which he had, uh, had spoken of. So the, the idea here is that, that God was burning in his anger toward their sin. But, but now he loves them because and he is gracious to them because of their repentance and because of their righteousness. God hasn't changed. Man is the one that has changed. It's just an expression of God's emotion of what's going on here. And forgiveness in real time is a wonderful thing. Um, you say, well, how does that square with? With my name being written down before the foundation of the earth. Just think about that. That hasn't changed. In real time, Carl Dingus was, was a fighting God. He was against God. And all of a sudden, God changed his life. And now, God is pleased with Carl Dingus. And Carl Dingus is living a righteous life. So in, in time, there seems to be this. But, but the name Carl Dingus was written down. Before the foundation of the world. That's God thinking. That's the way God. His purpose never changes. There there is grief over sin. Rejoicing over repentance and righteousness. But his purpose stays the same. And I know it's hard to grasp. Let me give you another example. Israel themselves rejected Christ. They crucified him. Romans chapter 11 just remind you of this passage, Romans chapter 11, verse, um, verse 11. 
I say that they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? That's Israel. They, they didn't reject the Lord so as completely just the Lord just rejected them. May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation came to the Gentile. By their sinfulness, by their rejection of the Messiah, salvation came to the Gentiles to make them jealous, he goes on to say. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure uh, is riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be when God reinstates them as a nation and and uh, and interjects his life into them and reborns them and causes them to be born again? And, And he goes on to say in verse 15, for if their rejection is is a reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance be? But life from the dead. It's just going to be, it's going to be a wonderful thing. Did God change his mind? Did God change his plan? No, not at all. That was, that was the plan from, from the very beginning. The plan from the very beginning. God did not, uh, reinvent his plan. It was all part of God's plan. Even that rejection of his son is part of God's plan. Even when his son was hanging on the cross and and he turns his back against his son, that that grief, did he hate his son? Did he reject his son? Well, he rejected him hanging on the cross because he was carrying our sins. And the wrath of God just poured on him instead instead of us. And so what we see in this plan of salvation is the range of emotion from from love and compassion to the wrath of God, to grace and and love and and pity. The whole range of emotion then is on display and it's part of God's glory. All of it's part of His, His glory. God is a good communicator. And despite His uh, despite his great difference between man and God, he is a good communicator. He can he can use language that uh, communicates that, that he relates to man, that we can understand, and that's what's happening here. It's, nothing is lost in translation with God. Now, I just want to apply this in a couple of ways, because our image of God, our understanding of God, is the most important part of us. It's the most important thing about us. And that's our theology, our understanding of God. Most important thing. In fact, uh, someone said, one theologian said, no society raises above their understanding of God. No society raises above their understanding of God. This affects our understanding of God, right? And we emphasize the the sovereignty of God, Daniel's Bible Church. And it's right. Um, God is sovereign. His plan is going to be laid out there. His plan is going to, to... to be uh, from the beginning to the end. It's all going to be perfectly laid out. It's, it's perfectly done. But God is not just some kind of computer up in the sky. He's not just some kind of big brain that, that started everything working. And it just kind of uh, as uh, it just disconnected. But God is a passionate God. Essentially. Some people buy into to Christian deism that he started everything and then he and his sovereignty is is in check and, and then he just kind of checks out and he doesn't really care. But that's not at all true. That's not at all true. He, he does care. 
That kind of thinking is not from Scripture at all. God is not devoid of feeling. He's not a cold, stone-hearted God who doesn't feel at all the regret. But He sees what's going on in America. And it grieves Him. It grieves Him. He sees our heart. And it grieves Him. He is involved. He, he is not distant, folks. Now, he, does He have everything according to plan? According to schedule? Yes. Is He dispassionate? No, no. He is a God of passion. He is a God that, that cares. Now, number two. Second part. So we understand, our understanding of God has to be accurate. But know this. God invites us to plead. God invites us to, to come to Him and pray. He invited Abraham to, to come into the conversation knowing that Abraham is, is going to have compassion with these people and, and say, okay, God and brings it down to ten, just ten people. Surely there's ten people. Maybe in, in lots of uh, circles there's at least ten people. And he pleads with God and you compare that with the Lord's prayer, with, with a bold pleading with God. But yet, you have respect. You have an intercession there. But then at the end, Lord, Your will be done. Your will be done. God is personable. God is not, not some kind of spirit out there that doesn't care, disconnected from man. He is very much involved. Third question, last question. Can God be relied upon? (laughs) Can God be relied upon? You can go from Genesis to to Revelation. Many, many hundreds of scriptures that we can go through. But let me give you a few. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9. God is faithful. By whom you were called into fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. He is faithful. He is faithful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 24. He who called you is faithful, who also will do it. <laughs> Can God be relied upon? Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. <laughs> his will, His purpose, His plan, it's going to be accomplished. Lamentation chapter 3. I love this verse. It's talking about God's mercy. It just says... They, their mercy, his mercy, are new every morning. They are new every morning. He says, "Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord." Matthew chapter twenty-four. Matthew chapter twenty-four says, talks about the heavens and the earth will pass away, and we depend on that earth, that heaven up there, right? That's the sky. All the stars, the moon, the sun at day. And we depend on this. We don't even think about that. But someday, folks, that, that's going to pass away. But you know what's not going to pass away? His word. That's faithfulness. God's promise. God keeps His promise. I like what MacArthur says here. The only one we can count, or we can trust without reservation is God. Because of His character, He cannot lie. Whatever he says or does is absolutely true. He has no ability to contradict himself. When he makes a promise, he, can, he cannot or can't 
help but keep it. He never deviates from His will or from His word. Folks, that is 100% correct. The way it's applied by the author of Hebrews, I I love this, is that, that we have complete confidence in God and His word. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 says, Let us hold fast then. If it's not going to change, it's never going to change, then we hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. The very character of God, He promised and He is faithful. The tension that we see in in Scripture between God's mutability, there's unchangingness, And this appearance that that he changes. No, that's just good communication. That's just good communication. And it's a personable God. A personable God. God is unchanging in his essence, in his character, in his purpose, in his promise. God encourages his people then to plead with him. Folks, folks, we come to God and, and plead with him over America. And plead with Him over those people in our family that need the Lord. We plead with Him. And He listens. And He knows. He's empathetic. And He, he invites us. Invites us. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. I'll close with this. But He's sovereign. His will is going to be done. But somehow in the mind of God, He invites us. He invites us to plead with Him. He's a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning sin. Wow. Let's not be like Jonah. I didn't even get into Jonah. Jonah says, destroy them. I I knew that you would have compassion on them. But we need to be like Abraham and plead for them. Plead for the ungodly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, may we have your vision, have your eyes, eyes of compassion. Lord, we look at this world and we just think, why have you not already destroyed this earth? Why have you not just sent fire and just destroyed them all? You are patient. You are a God of compassion. Lord, may we have your eyes. And then, Lord, may we plead to you. May we come with compassionate pleas for our family members, those who are unsaved in our country. It is going down a completely different road now. Almost a completely different world than was 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. And Lord, you see what's happening. And your heart is grieved. May our heart grieve. But Lord, may we be people of compassion as well. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for being a good communicator. And and communicating these things to us. And then, then sending us your spirit so that we can know for sure. Through the gift of the spirit. Lord, you're so kind to us. Thank you for allowing us to just worship you today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.